0: If you have a Bible, open up to 1 Samuel, um, 1 Samuel chapter 19, 1 Samuel chapter 19. Of course, we'll be looking at the whole passage there in your chimes, but this morning, at this moment, we'll be reading uh, nineteen, chapter 19, verses 18 through 24. And you've already opened up to 1 Samuel once this morning, so since I'm assuming you're able to get there pretty quickly, why don't we go ahead and stand now out of reverence for the reading of the words of our God. The author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that as the words on this page are being read, God himself is speaking to us, beginning in verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. He and Samuel went and lived at Naoth, and it was told Saul, Behold, David is at Naoth and Ramah. And then Saul sent messengers to take David and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. And then he himself went to Ramah And came to the great well that is in Siku. And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah. And the Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said is Saul also among the prophets let's pray together oh Lord our God we thank you for Jesus we thank you for his gospel and oh God today would you please open our hearts and minds so that we might receive your word and be changed by it it's in Christ's name we pray amen you may be seated Bud Payne is a friend of mine from my previous church in rural Kentucky. Some of you might have met Bud and his wife Janie. They, a few times, have been coming on vacation down to Florida and they've stopped off and worshiped here at First Baptist Church. But Bud is one of those guys, he's a jack of all trades. He's a long haul truck driver, a business owner, a farmer. He has these really cool Clydesdale horses he used to bring to church sometimes. He's just a cool guy. I have all kinds of Budisms from my time around Bud. He always had sayings and things he liked to say. Every time he saw me, he'd say, hey there, Easy Money, which I think is a great nickname for a pastor. And so uh, he was just that kind of guy. Just a ball of energy everywhere he went. One of my favorites was this, though. He loved to tell me this because he would say, now, do you need to know how to get there? Rural Kentucky, it's often you need to know how to get there. And I would say something to Bud that was anathema. I would say, no, Bud, I'll I'll just put it in my phone, my GPS. Preacher, do you know what a GPS is for? What, Bud? Somebody that don't know how to read a map. (laughs) Bud had great disdain. Uh, Not for all technology, because if we're being honest, a map is technology, but he had a great disdain for GPS. I'll be honest, I pride myself on having a good sense of direction. I I like to kind of get a feel for a place or a city and kind of pride myself on knowing how to get around without much aid. But nonetheless, I am thankful for the GPS system in my phone. Because it can tell me something a map can't. A map can tell me where all sorts of things are, but a map can't tell me where I am. And I love that about a GPS system. I love that about my phone. My phone can tell me where I am. And so even then, I like to say, if I could just have only that information, that's enough. Then I can use a map. But it's nice to know where you are. In fact, our family uses an app called Life360, where not only do we know where we are, we know where everybody else is as well. It's good to know where people are. It's good to know that people are in the right place. It's good to know you're where you're supposed to be. And I think sometimes we might wish we had a spiritual GPS or or a Life360 app for our relationship with God. A way to sort of really quickly look and know and think, am I where I'm supposed to be? Am I in the right place? Sometimes I think we feel like we're flying blind when it comes to how close we might be to God. Are we really on the right track. But I think the scriptures give us something close. Not only the Bible itself, uh, does it give us an idea of where we are in our relationship to God, but specifically I think in these verses, in these chapters we're looking at here today, the Bible gives us something close to a spiritual GPS, a way to tell where you are, a way to figure out where you are in your relationship with God, and that's this. How do you view the plan and purpose of God? How do you relate to to what God is up to in the world. Jesus said something like this to people in his day. In John chapter 8, verse 42, he said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. What is Jesus saying there? If you really loved God, if you really were where you think you are, (laughs) If you really knew where you are, you might can see the map and you might can read the map, but you don't really know where you are. If you really were where you think you are, then you would love me. You would love God's plan. You would love God's purpose because I came not of my own accord, Jesus said, but God, my Father, sent me. Ultimately, don't you see how this is Saul's problem? Saul seems to never be in the right place, but so much of that is because he hates God's plan and purpose because Saul's focus is on Saul. Saul's love is for Saul. Saul doesn't see his kingship as something he is doing unto the Lord. He sees himself as an employee of the people, and he wants to please the people in order to preserve himself. This morning, I want this story to function for us as sort of a spiritual GPS A sort of way to know where we stand. Let's look at how our reaction to and our understanding of God's purpose and plan can tell us where we are spiritually. I want to show you this morning three points to help you think through how you understand God's purpose and God's plan. Here's the first point today. If you use God, you'll hate God's plan. If you use God, you'll hate God's God's plan. And one of the saddest stories, saddest narratives of the Bible darkness continues to fall over Saul. Darkness continues to fall over this king. The author did, continues to demonstrate Saul's ability, inability to see, and his inability to see what God is up to by including the fact here in the very last verses of chapter 17. Right as soon as David and Goliath is over, we see David. I mean, we see Saul inquiring as to who David is and who his family is, which the astute reader will find that strange because David had already been playing the harp. In the court of Saul. But again, I think this is highlighted intentionally not only to show a little bit of the pride of Saul, perhaps, that he doesn't really even know those who are around him, but also showing the way that this reality of David's kingship is sort of sneaking up on him, that that Saul still hasn't fully reckoned with the reality that he's been rejected as king. Saul seeks this information and needs this information because after David's great and mighty victory in battle, He wants to make David a military leader to give him a great honor. However, Saul's good decision to put David in this position of authority leads to his own jealousy. Cole read some of this story for us earlier in chapter 18, verses 6 through 9. But you hear the song that the women sing in verse 7. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. And David, his ten thousands. I think you'll remember the warnings that the Lord gave about what a king would be like. One of the things they said is he would take your young men and not send them back. And you see here, Saul has just demanded that David come and not go back to his father who needed him. And so he wouldn't let him go back to his father. And there's also a lot of talk about how the king might treat your young women. And so it's no mistake one commentator pointed out that Saul is enraged not only because of how David is viewed, but particularly perhaps the way he's viewed by women. There's a jealousy that's beginning to develop here. This leads Saul in a fit of rage to begin to try to strike down and murder David. It's like he's saying this, David has struck his ten thousands, so now I'll strike David. Let's hear the songs then. Let's see what they have to say about me then but David in his own ability and prowess and cunning evades Saul's attempts at murder twice we learn in verse 11 I want you to notice the poignancy of verse 12 the way the author is helping us understand the story Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but departed from Saul the presence of God which should be a comfort And a joy to the king of Israel of all places has now become something that's odorous in the nostrils of Saul. Something he hates, something he's enraged by. That is, seeing God's plan and purpose written all over David doesn't lead Saul to love him. It leads him to hate him. And so the text continues, Saul removed him from his presence and gave him another military post. Seems like maybe a different one or a more specific post where he's a leader of a thousand. Presumably that so it would be busier and more dangerous. And so Saul's descent into madness, rage and sin begins to be accelerated and deepened. At this point, in fact, when you think about it, his attempts to do away with David results in David's success. He wanted him to get killed in battle. And yet verses 14 and 15 tell us David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But not only is sending David away adding to David's successes, but it's also got a second way that it's accelerating Saul's descent because he's sending David away from his presence and David's presence in ministering to him musically was the only thing that was keeping the evil spirit at bay. It's the only thing that could calm or comfort Saul. And so you'll see the way that as this, these texts progress that we're looking at today, Saul goes deeper and deeper into darkness and gets whipped into more and more of a frenzy of anger, jealousy, and rage. Here's the simple reality for us as we study this and think through this. If you use God which is clearly what Saul's doing. He, he uses God from his unlawful sacrifice to the other things, and by the end of his long and sordid story, he'll be going to a witch to try to use God. Actually, to try to use Samuel to try to use God. Violating the laws he himself had even made against seeing necromancers in that way. Saul used God, and because of that, He hated God's plan and purpose. He hated seeing the presence of God in David's life. He hated seeing the successes in David's life. He hated seeing the way that David was growing in favor with the people of Israel. Saul sees God's favor on David as a problem rather than a blessing. Saul sees David's success as a threat rather than a victory of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, today as you look at this passage, as you consider this story, this is the question you must ask yourself. Do you love God's gospel plan? Do you love what God's doing through Jesus? Do you love what God's called you to in Christ until it costs you? Do you love what God's doing until it frustrates you? Do you love serving God until God stops keeping what you think is his end of the bargain? What's all this obedience for if it's not for an easier life? You might ask the Lord. Do you love God's gospel plan until it doesn't give you what you think you deserve? My friends, if you find yourself hating God's purpose and plan, your position in relation to God is not right. You're in the wrong place. It's a ding. It's a notification that you are not where you need to be. Perhaps you're using God. And that's not to say we have to love everything that happens. Bear in mind, we're asking ourselves whether we love what God is doing through Christ in the gospel. And are we trusting Him, even though, certainly in difficult circumstances. This leads us to our second point. If you use God, you'll hate God's plan. But if you love God, you'll love God's purpose. If you use God, you'll hate God's purpose and plan because it's not doing what you want Him to do. You're using Him to accomplish your will. But if you love God, if you genuinely love God and love what God's doing in the world, you'll love God's purposes, you'll love God's plan. We've already been introduced to Jonathan, but as Cole read for us earlier, we see the way that very early on here, as soon as this episode with Goliath is over, immediately, the Bible says, the soul of Jonathan, chapter 18, verse 1, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now I want you to notice what Jonathan does. He makes a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself, the Bible said, of the robe that was on him and he gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. This isn't just like, hey, here's some stuff of value. Why don't you have it? Or you're a great warrior. Why don't you have this? Whether Jonathan wittingly or unwittingly at this point is doing so, the author is highlighting this reality to show us a symbolic transfer. One that Jonathan will hold to at the cost of his own life. A symbolic transfer where Jonathan is handing over these symbols that are royal signifiers. This robe that was the sign of him being the heir of Saul, this royal robe. You'll remember the story of Joseph and his coat that was a signifier of the special favor and love of his father. It's similar in this respect where Jonathan is handing over these royal signifiers over to this shepherd. Dave, Jonathan stripped himself, giving these things to David. And then we turn and we learn about Saul's daughter, Michal. Not only does Jonathan love David and see David but McCall falls in love with David, David had earned the right in defeating the Philistine champion Goliath. he had earned the right to marry the king's daughter. One marriage to the older daughter doesn't work out, mainly because David says, "You know what uh, i'm I'm far too poor. It's not good for me to be the king's son-in-law and so Saul sort of sort of takes that a little too quickly <laughs> and says thinking at this point, well, it's not good to have him as part of my family and marries his daughter off to someone else. But then later in his plotting and raging and machinations, Saul hears that his daughter Michal loves David. And so Saul thinks, okay, here's what I'll do. He knows how David will answer with humility and the fact that he can't afford a dowry, he can't afford a bride price for a king's daughter of all things. So he determines Saul determines that he'll require of David a dowry of blood. The requirement is that instead of a great bride price, bring me 100 Philistine foreskins. And the fault for Saul is that this will surely be dangerous enough to finally put an end to this pestilent shepherd. But of course, as things have always gone with David and with Saul, the Lord was with David. And he winds up killing 200 Philistines and delivers the foreskins to Saul and is given to Michal in marriage. And in other words, instead of it leading to David's death, it leads to an even greater victory for David and thus for the Lord. And again, Saul's plan falls back on his own head. Now David has another powerful ally in addition to Saul's son Jonathan. He has another powerful ally in the royal family. That's Saul's own daughter. Now, I want you to think as the story continues, the narrative continues. Okay, I want you to think about the great love which these two siblings, these two children of the king, this love and dedication that they have for David, God's anointed one. And they don't just have it theoretically, they put it to work. In chapter 19, Saul calls together some of his advisors, and among them is Jonathan, and he explicitly and openly tells them that they should go kill David. And and I want you to think about this. Jonathan has everything to gain from David being dead. But nonetheless, Jonathan warns David and convinces his father not to kill him. And so David then, for the last time, returns to Saul's court. But similar to what happened earlier, again, again, Saul tries to pin him to the wall with his spear to strike down this striker of tens of thousands. And David barely escapes again. And as Saul gets worse and worse, as he descends further, Into darkness, he sends spies to spy on David and eventually kill him, putting mercenaries around the the house of his own daughter and son-in-law. But what does Michal do? She hatches a plot, much like Jonathan had done, and risks her own life in protecting David from the rage of her father, deceiving her father as he came to get David in order that David could escape. I want you to see what Jonathan and McCall are doing. I want you to see the way that they're dedicated to David no matter what. And to understand the profundity of this dedication, you have to recognize what God's purpose is. God is tearing down Saul's dynasty and establishing David's. Jonathan and Michal both forsake their family loyalty, and they both commit to David because they see David and love David, not merely as a person, but I think the text is teaching us here that they are seeing God's plan and purpose. They are seeing by faith the plan and purpose of God, and they are acting accordingly. They are risking their lives. They're risking their family. Jonathan is risking his own future as king, laying down and stripping himself of his future royalty in order that the plan and purpose of god through david and his dynasty might stand we all recognize now in hindsight that what they were seeing was the messianic legacy that david was going to lead a greater son of david would one day come you see these siblings are honoring the one god honors no matter the risk to themselves or the personal loss they may suffer let me ask you this question. When do you love the plan and purpose of God? When, when is it that you love what God's up to? Check the map and see where you are. Is your love of God's plan reflective of a love for God? Do you love what God is doing through the gospel? Is the gospel enough for you? Oh, I hope it is. I hope you'll be like Jonathan and McCall. That leads us to our last point this morning. Last sort of thing we need to think about in terms of how we relate to God is this. Trust God. I'll tell you this today. Trust God because God accomplishes His plan and purposes. David snuck out of his window and he's fleeing never again to return to Saul's court. A, a permanent exile from the presence and favor of the king. The anointed king of Israel, The future king, the writer of the Psalter, the king from whom our Lord in Christ would descend, is now an enemy of the state of Israel. And so David goes, the only place I suppose he knows to go, and he takes refuge among Samuel and a group of prophets at Naoth. We've read this passage just earlier. Saul hears the word, he kind of sniffs them out, and he goes and finds them, and he sends messengers to arrest and bring David to him. But when they saw Samuel and the prophets, I love this scene, I I love this thought of Naoth, of these men of God hiding uh, out here, and they're in this encampment of some sort. And as these messengers come, no doubt, with all the signifiers that they come from the king, no doubt, in power and glory, as soon as they see Samuel prophesying over these other prophets, they immediately begin to prophesy themselves. Word reaches back to Saul and he sends another group of messengers to arrest David and bring him back. A third time, after the second time, again, another group of messengers come, three times in total, all of whom break out in prophecy. Finally, if you can't get someone else to do what you need to do, you might as well just go do it yourself. And so Saul himself goes. Sometimes I wonder what all was on Saul's mind as he made this journey to Ramah, to Naoth, you wonder if on this journey he remembered a a journey he took years before. A journey in search of donkeys, a journey of remarkable providence. And where in those days, and even in these days, where had Saul been? (laughs) This king of Israel, this giant, head and shoulders among his kinsmen, this prince of such promise, where had he been? The one who began his journey to glory and greatness amidst hope and optimism. God's grace seemed to shine so brightly despite the sin of the people. God had given them the king they desired, and it seemed like God had given them one that he wanted. Think back to that journey and what had happened then in 1 Samuel chapter 10, when Saul had turned his back to leave Samuel After being anointed as king with oil, God gave him another heart. Verse 9 of chapter 10. And all these signs came to pass that day. When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him, and he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over this son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? But where is Saul now? Not in this place of glory, but now in a dark place. Laid low by fear, Saul was never really among the warriors. Forded by his children, outsmarted by his foe, graciously restrained by God at this moment, he was kept from being numbered among the murderers. Consumed by jealousy, it's nonetheless not there that Saul remains. Where is Saul? Where has Saul He's obsessed with the opinion of the people. He's wasting his time and his gifts. He's descending into madness and rage. Saul never takes a seat among the faithful kings. Where is Saul? Where does he find himself? Back in the same place he began. Saul is among the prophets. But this time, not as an object of God's good pleasure, but of God's displeasure. At this time, no longer is Saul glistening with the oil of God's favor, but instead he stripped. You see what the Bible says? Do do, do you see what the Scripture teaches us about what happens? He too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, and he lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, as Saul also among the prophets. Borrowing a phrase from earlier, He's stripped, stripped of every stitch of regalia, stripped of every thread of dignity, stripped of every pretense of kingship or even basic dignity. And all that day and all that night, supine and naked before a holy God, Saul is unable to speak any word but praise to the true king who put him in this place in the first place. You see, what Jonathan did was Jonathan saw God's plan. He saw God's anointed one. He saw God's purpose. And what did Jonathan do? He stripped himself. But Saul was blinded by pride and fear and anger and rage. And he himself was stripped by God. What anguish. What humiliation. What sadness. What tragedy. What has come over this son of Kish? Is Saul also... Among the prophets. What glorious and then tragic bookends these phrases are on the career of a would be great king. Brothers and sisters, God accomplishes his plan and his purposes, God keeps his promises. Think about what God is doing. God is tearing down Saul and establishing David in order that he might establish an eternal kingdom. Saul is so focused on hanging on to power that he can't see the bigger picture of what true power is, of what true glory is, of what God's true plan and purpose is. Nothing will stand in the way of what God is doing and God will bring anyone who stands in pride down to his face before him. In fact, consider this. Nothing will stand in the way of what God is doing. We must trust Him. In fact, consider that what God is doing here was to lead to the greater Son of David who willingly went to the cross who was stripped naked and tortured, and who himself drank to the hilt the very wrath of God in order that God's plan and purpose might stand, in order that the gospel might go forth to the ends of the earth, in order that His grace might reach the ears of even people here in Gadsden, Alabama in 2023. Brothers and sisters, do you see what you should see when you see that cross? When you see our Lord nailed to that awful tree, does your heart leap with joy? Are your hopes kindled and ignited? Do you see the beauty and grace and glory of God when you look to the one who was nailed to that tree? Do you see in Christ the plan and purpose of God? My friends, that's how you know where you are. That's your GPS location. That's your notification that you are near to God. When you see Jesus and you find yourself overcome with the beauty of the plan and purpose of God, do you hear what our Lord is saying to you even now, if God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me.